You're listening to Sunnyside Up, a B2B podcast that brings together real-world insights to help go-to-market professionals evolve and stay up-to-date on the latest trends. Join us as we bring you the best practices and proven techniques from industry experts and practitioners. Today's episode is made possible by Demandbase. Demandbase is transforming the way B2B companies go to market by enabling customers to embrace modern digital sales and marketing with a complete end-to-end suite of products. Thanks for listening. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Sunnyside Up. I'm your host, Mithul Shah. Today, I'm super excited to talk to Celeste on demystifying data science. In general, you know, we have a lot of sales and marketing or go-to-market professionals, but we thought this time, you know, we want to kind of mix it up a little bit and talk about data science because data science is becoming more and more pervasive, if not already, in go-to-market, you know, and then there's a lot of misnomer, there's a lot of incorrect information. So we thought that why not to bring somebody who is trained educated and expert in this to talk about data science. So let me first talk about Celeste. Celeste is a senior principal engineer, chief data scientist, and is responsible for innovating advanced analytics and analytics processes at McAfee. She was named Forbes top 50 technical women in America and has applied AI to 10 different markets over 40 years. She also holds PhD in biomedical engineering from Arizona State University with numerous patents and papers. Celeste, super excited to talk to you. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So in general, we, we usually do this in a, like a Q&A style, right? I mean, like there's some questions on the topic and we kind of go back and forth. But I think after having a conversation with you, it kind of dawned on us is that, you know, as this might be a little bit of a maybe slightly technical topic for us to kind of demystify this. I think it might be great that, you know, if we could create a PowerPoint and you graciously, you know, agree to that and you put together a PowerPoint. So why don't we kind of go through that and I'll probably ask you some questions on it to kind of discuss the basics of, you know, people talk about what is AI and ML and people have been throwing these words, you know, as if like there's no tomorrow, right? Everybody talks about AI and ML, deep learning and neural network models. And our, our audience tends to be not very technical. So maybe if you can just run through your presentation, I can ask you some questions and see if you can demystify this whole day science. What sure. do you think? I think that would be a great idea. Awesome. Uh, one of the things I want to make sure I've done is shut off my VPN. And I've done that. McAfee yeah. is very, very careful about what we Send. So I'll make sure that that is off and we have better connectivity. Let me share my presentation. And that's me. Contact information is in the back if you need it. Let's start out with some really up-to-date statistics that I recently gathered. And because I got a terrible memory, I went ahead and I put these down. And as you can read from them, AI is taking off like nobody's business, as you can imagine. What really surprised me though, is a 26% increase in global GDP by 2030. Mm -hmm. And there are certainly a lot of digital data that has been created by last year, 40 times more bits of data than there are stars in the universe. I'm, I'm not sure who counts them, but the stars, but I'm sure there's physicists out there that do that. But let's ask ourselves, 
what is AI? And, and to answer that, got to go back a little bit in history. And I call it the analytics pipeline because marketing kind of took over towards the end. But that's a good thing. We just want to make sure that we know what that means. Predictive analytics emerged in 1940. John McCarthy proposed AI in 1956. Neural networks emerged shortly thereafter, and they were dismissed. About that time, the microprocessor started taking off, and you'll see that the increase of Moore's Law, and as we added cloud, as we added IoT as we added microprocessor power, things started to emerge, including that sexy name, according to Harvard Business Review and Dr. Tom Davenport, called data scientist. Before we were all called statisticians, but now we're called data scientists. And between 1998 and 2005, big data emerged. And McAfee deals with big data like literally terabytes a month. So we really deal with big data. Watson, if you remember with Jeopardy, made AI interesting again in 2011, and it beat Jeopardy contestant. Neural networks became accessible. Fortunately, I had finished my PhD by that time, which involved neural networks. So I'm, I'm glad they finally became acceptable. But they became acceptable because of the increase of compute power. Machine learning apparently solved everything uh, <laughs> in, in 2016. Now marketing has called AI to be inclusive of all analytics. And that's, to a mathematician, we might disagree with that. But it's easier to say AI than it is machine learning, deep learning, and AI. But let's look at the difference between the two. And I've, I've created a pyramid of complexity and intelligence in analytics, and this might help a little bit. Architecture and data management. Architecture is how your data moves from pipeline to pipeline, from customer into the into the model and back out again. It's really all about that data lineage and compute capability. Data management is critical and should be a foundation along with architecture for all of the, the models that you're going to develop or, or use. Data management looks at data quality, data governance, things like documentation. Then there's the statisticians like myself. And I truly believe that statistics should be taught to everyone who deals with machine learning, deep learning, and AI, because it really is the, the basis of everything. When machine learning came along during that timeline I showed, big data started to emerge, as you know, and machine learning typically uses software to deal with the big volumes of data. It trains, it learns, it looks for patterns in the data. Deep learning is very similar to the brain, complex layers of the brain. Unfortunately, deep learning is also very vulnerable to attacks and it's very difficult to explain, but we'll get to that in a minute. And, and finally, the futurists among the data scientists now believe that 2029 is when we will finally get to the real AI of reason, logic, and value judgments. I suspect you see or hear a little bit about that with Alexa. 
years ago, they dealt with thousands and thousands of layers of neural networks. I'm sure they've improved it since then because she talks to me, she decides what I need all the time and my nutrition. She's just getting smarter. So actually 2029 isn't that far off and, and we've gone very, very fast. Celeste, let me, yeah. maybe maybe you you're probably going to cover this. If you are, then then stop me. But you know, we keep hearing about you know people interchangeably use machine learning and AI and neural net. And are these all the branches of AI? Like when people say AI, does that include machine learning and neural net and deep net, or it's other way around? Typically the former. AI specifically utilizes deep learning as well as natural language processing. But I've also seen deep learning be done by hand and you don't need a machine. So I don't see that you need machine learning to do deep learning, but with big data and anything over, you know, a, a supervised number of rows by I don't know, maybe a hundred, you're going to want to use machine learning. It's just too complex and onerous for a human to calculate. Got it. So, so it's machine learning and AI and neural net and, and deep learning are kind of part of that ML. Machine learning is an umbrella term, you know, and others are kind of, you know, stacking into it. It's typically now AI is the umbrella term. And deep learning is a part of machine learning. And mathematically, I'm a purist, so I like to separate them. And this doesn't, this, this pyramid here doesn't really state that one thing begets another. I'm just showing the difference in the complexity and the intelligence of, of them and how important architecture and data management is. And if, if you are creating AI within your business or you're embedding AI in a product, please start with data management. It's so critical to make sure that those models within machine learning, within deep learning and, and AI are repeatable and reproducible. Got it. Let's think about a couple of questions that sales and marketing should be asking. I was surprised that Andrew Ning, who called the, well, he's co-owner of Coursera. He's, you know, the god of machine learning. You know, everybody looks, looks to Andrew as, as the expert in our field. He reported out FICO survey that they spoke to about 100 C-suite executives across different industries. And they found, not surprisingly, that 51% of companies do not monitor models after deployment. Mm. And this is really an issue because gone now are the days uh, that you've got a virtuoso data scientist that is creating models and it's so exciting. Well, now we've got to look at, at AI and I'm, I'm using that term inclusive of machine learning and deep learning and AI. We've got to look at that as a system from development through preparing it for implementation to 
preparing it to using it in the field, using those models in the field, whether they're embedded in your, your product like a toaster that's connected to the web or your refrigerator that has internet connection. But I did think of a couple of questions that sales and marketing should be asking about monitoring and how are you monitoring and alerting model performance in the field? And a good answer is that we take field information and feed it back into the model development system. Well, dive deeper. How often? What kind of information are you, are you feeding back into the system? How often are you retraining your model? I've seen models in the field that haven't been retrained with new data for 11 to 15 years, and that's unacceptable. You really, and I'll show you a, a slide that shows how models can decay over time in the field. A better answer, and these aren't singular, these build upon each other, these answers, we alert with thresholds based on statistically derived history, not, hey, zero to 50 is is good, 51 to 100 is bad. No, use statistics. Statistics really is a great foundation for every machine learner, every data scientist to learn. Can you predict how the model is, is going to perform? How often do you assess those thresholds? We have some thresholds that are very active. They are looked at on a, on a daily, if not more frequent basis, and we make sure that those thresholds are precise for the customer. A best answer is we're monitoring concept drift, which is when your labels change in security, your labels can go from malicious to benign to malicious again over time. So that concept drift is really important to understand. Data decay is really about how the volumes of your features change or how your data is changing over time. Your cybersecurity threats, of course, are very important to, to look for because most ransomware comes from Trojans, from phishing, from spam. So if you want to make sure that you're not the one getting a ransom note for your company, make sure you don't click on any of the phishing or, or spam emails. There's anomalies, things like zero day that you've never seen that issue before. It's an anomaly, an outlier that you've never seen. And monitor your models in the field. Monitor things within your development. Is your monitoring real-time or is it batch? And we'll go through just a, a few things here as I drill down a little further on this question. Drift, again, is, is uh, that concept drift. Is data labels changing from good to bad? Yes to no, malicious to benign to malicious to benign. Decay is when data changes over time. Again, your volumes of your features. Cyber is your new threats, your detections. Make sure that you look at your true positive, true negative, false positive, false negative, or confusion matrix in data science terms because adversaries can come in 
and just slightly knock on your door and you'll get kind of a, oh, it's such a nuisance. I'm going to raise the threshold. I believe that's the right direction. And your false positives will increase. And it's literally giving the adversary a, an open door to get into your model and your features without knowing what they are. Anomalies, again, outliers, what are they? But the frequency, targeted, zero day. And finally, your, your model, how often are you retraining and why? Well, I have another question, just two. So, but sorry, before we, we, we move on to the second question. So yeah. as what we are seeing is more and more go-to-market teams are you know having data science teams now, right? right? And the, the the supporting question and the fact you know what you're bringing here is how can you make sure that these models that are that are being created by a data scientist who may not have may or may not have the relevant background for go-to-market that they may or may not understand what you do on sales or or what you do on a day-to-day on a marketing side, and the idea here is that. How can you ask relevant questions to the data scientists who are building this model and putting this data through to give you that answer that, hey, go after this opportunity or this customer is ready to buy and so forth. What should you be asking, right? What should you be doing to make sure that what they're producing is relevant? Exactly. In fact, you can actually, when COVID finally calms down, if we're at some of these big conferences and we're in the vendor theater, you can actually go over to competitors and ask these same questions. I would be surprised if they gave you an answer, but frankly, they should. Many companies use data scientists to assess churn, re-up rates, things like that. And frankly, if those models aren't retrained routinely and checking for concept drift, data changes, data decay, any issues with their false positive rates in particular, are you seeing any anomalies? You know, frankly, your churning prediction for marketing and sales will be as good as it was the first day, but I can tell you that models die. Models decay, and I'll show you a picture of that on the the last slide, but it's important to understand that because most most of the data scientists are so excited to get a model that works with great accuracy, with great recall and precision, great performance metrics, and then they put it out in the field and it generalizes well and they're really excited and then they go off and they create the next model. In the meantime, that model is decaying. That model is slowly losing its accuracy, its power, its recall, its precision, its performance metrics, whatever you choose that to be. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, all right, second question. Drum roll. Drum roll. Yeah, I should have a little drum here. Andrew Ning in the same survey found that 50% of companies do not evaluate data and models for bias. And I've, I've got the resource there located at the bottom. So the question is to your data scientist or a competitor, how do you evaluate bias in your data and your models? 
And if they go, uh, well, that, that's not good. If they say we use explainability or XAI as we develop models, that's good, but it's not enough. XAI or explainability tool can be utilized at the completion of your model to understand the direction and the strength of the feature vectors that went in to causing your model to give the answer it did. So explainability came about particularly with neural networks because neural networks are very difficult to understand because if you if you look at them, they're they're kind of all over the the map and it looks like it looks like a just a spaghetti, you know, if if you're not a trained data science from start to finish. It's just a bunch of spaghetti pipelines going back and forth. And so by the time you get to the end, you have no idea how that model came to the answer it did. So in came explainability. And explainability goes in and it looks for the specific features or variables that contributed to the answer. And so this is important because you want to make sure, particularly with checking for bias, that say if you're a person with cancer and you're getting a routine screen every six months and it came back and it says, you don't have cancer. And it was a false negative and you actually did have cancer. It's a big deal. I mean, it's a difference between, you know, life and death. And as a cancer patient in remission, I can tell you that I am concerned about how these models in the medical equipment are calculated and are evaluated. Credit reports, I'm sure everybody's heard about how credit reports, if they're not explainable, if, if the model is not explainable, it can unintentionally stop, say, a person of color from getting a loan for, for a house or a credit card because the training set didn't include enough people of color. Hmm. Or back to the cancer example, it didn't include enough old females that have had cancer before. So explainability is pretty basic that people should be applying. A better answer is we correct unbalanced data sets, have an AI ethics board, and utilize anti-bias algorithms or de-bias algorithms throughout AI ops. Now that term AI ops is fairly new, it's being thrown around. That includes development or DevOps and ML ops and is inclusive of both of those and should include the field. I've not seen a, a perfect definition of that or looked for one, but AI operations or AI ops should in, be inclusive of the entire system from soup to nuts. So you want to make sure that your data set is balanced for the customers that you're serving. A best answer 
again, these are built upon each other. So not just one, you've got to do all three is accountability for bias is clear. You know who to point to inclusive of the C-suite. So you want to make sure that your C-suite understands what bias means and what it means to their product. Reverse engineering, diversity and development teams have shown to help. Alternate learning sets, even synthetic training sets have been used, reviewed, and they're updated. We understand, mitigate, and account for convergent bias in the AI ecosystem. And, and I like that term AI ecosystem because it, it does reflect soup to nuts and everything that is inclusive of AI, including that C-suite guy or woman that's sitting there and less than 50% of them is another, another Andrew Ying survey answer in that source there, less than 50% have bias, understand bias at the C-suite level. So make sure your leadership team is part of your AI ecosystem as well. So putting this into kind of a little bit of a sales and marketing context, you know, let me, let me get this thing right, if I understand you correctly, is that the data you're providing to the model that's going to predict, say, for example, new opportunities or new customers I should go after, you're saying make sure that the data we are putting it as an input, as, as it's called sample set, you know, includes the good opportunities, the bad opportunities, the small opportunities, the large opportunities, maybe international opportunities, so that your model has diverse set of data to train on, to predict you know, the right set of opportunities. Otherwise it might predict, you know, only one genre or one type of opportunities that may or may not, you know, serve the correctly to the business. That's correct. That's spot on. In fact, one of the great, I'm sorry, I don't have it in here, but one of the great examples of bias and Google and Microsoft have had their share. It's very publicized, but I like the one where the Asian man is coming through international customs and it's using a model that was not trained on enough Asian males. Mm -hmm. And so the model or the solution kept saying, open your eyes, open your eyes. And the poor Asian traveler male was, I am opening my eyes. <laughs> and, and the whole issue was that they didn't have enough Asian males or Asians at all in their training set, in their sample set to train the model on. So if your data scientist is not working hand in hand with your marketing and salespeople, something's wrong. So that's a, that's a very interesting example. So Celeste, as we have a few minutes left, I mean, any anything interesting sure. besides this, I can ask my uh, data science team to make sure that they're going to produce, you know, something that's tangible, something useful, something concrete that I can use. I would ask them how to monitor risk. This is kind of a drill down of those three questions. So I would ask them how they monitor risk within their AI program. 
And lastly, those two questions really feed into the entire AI ops or AI ecosystem that says, how do you measure model decay, Ms. Data Scientist? And your performance metric is on the y-axis. Your time is on the x-axis. And the two questions that had a number, I think we've, we've gone through actually 10 contributors to decay causes, they can all be integrated together mathematically for that blue rectangle, that green rectangle, and so on and so forth. So you understand why your model is decaying in the field. Sales and marketing will be very, very happy to have, have a, a model. But if your data scientist is off on the new sexy model, and they're not measuring the model decay to assess mean time to decay, which is a great industry shareable metric, then the sales and marketing guys, ladies, are, are out there doing great at the beginning, but that model will decay. All models decay. But how fast it decays is really something that the marketing and the sales people should, should be aware of. So I've shown you the, the history of AI. I've shown you the pyramid of complexity and intelligence of that architecture and data management through statistics, machine learning, deep learning, and AI. I've given you two questions that if you drill deep down into it, you can actually kind of drill a little deeper into your data scientist as to what they're answering. And finally, I've given you a, a chart on how you should be looking at model decay. And even if you're a marketing and sales guy and that guy, sorry, I'm from the North. So everybody's a guy, ladies included. But if you're a marketing and sales guy and you're looking at model and you know nothing about data science, you know nothing about AI, you should be asking if this particular solution that I have on my phone or I have on my computer is using AI or machine learning, I want to know how often or how often it's being retrained and what is the decay of its model. So those are things that you can ask your data scientists. I think, I think that's a great summary, right? In a sense that data science is definitely very powerful, very useful, it's pervasive, it's here to stay, you know, and it's going to progress more and more and more and more use and go to market. Don't be afraid to ask questions to your data scientist about what kind of data they're training on, what kind of performance are they getting, what kind of model DK they have, you know, so I think, I think these are some great suggestions. And uh, if you have any questions, send an email to Celeste and, and ask her as to what else should I be asking my data scientist, you know, or gal or, or guy to, to find out that how they can truly help, you know, help me do my job better. I hope that was helpful. And you know if you're not sure your data scientist is giving you a line of whatever, if they're not looking at least on those five items that I mentioned on those two questions, those are really basic. 
So, you know, just start probing and ask why. I always, my mantra is ask why five times. Uh And, you know, pretty soon they'll go. And if they do, you better go up the chain because something's something's wrong. You do not want your model to decay and you holding the solution that has a customer that comes back and says, your solution doesn't recognize me because I'm Asian. I, I think that was a great example, Celeste, with that. Thank you so much. And I really appreciate you putting this presentation and educating us, you know, on some of the basic things we should be asking, you know, data scientists to make sure that they are producing something that's valuable and not academic, you know, that's not gonna solve any anybody's problem. That's right. I'm happy to give you the the latest presentation. It has my contact information as well as very thorough speaker notes that probably I didn't cover everything, but if you read through the speaker notes, you'll get a a very good idea. If you you didn't listen to the podcast a third or fourth time, at least you can see the the speaker notes as well. I don't know if that would help you. No, I think I think I think this is great. But you know, thank you so much. And well, thank, you for uh, thank, you, thank you for being on the show. Thank you. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of Sunnyside Up. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review us and subscribe to our show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you consume podcasts. You can also find us on YouTube and Demand Based TV. 